Australian author Gary Disher is recognised as the master of rural noir with his latest Hirsch novel, Consolation, a recent 2021 Ned Kelly Best Crime Novel winner just in the last few weeks. It's the third Ned Kelly Award that Gary's won. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series. So you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and in Binge Reading today, Gary talks about how 40 years of writing has turned into something he might call success, in quotes, only in the last five years and why he's drawn to stories about good people living in an unforgiving world. We've got three e-book copies of Gary's award-winning novel, Consolation, the third book in the Hirsch series to give away to three lucky readers. Enter the draw on our bingereading.com website or on the Binge Reading Facebook page. And you'll find links to Gary's books and website on the Joys of Binge Reading as well. Don't forget to check out our Patreon page for Binge Reading, just launched. For the equivalent of a cup of coffee a month, you can help defray the costs of running the show. Sound editing, transcribing, hosting, they all add up. I've been paying them for the last four years. And that's not including my time spent in reading the books and contacting the authors to arrange interviews. As a bonus for your support, you'll get access to Patreon-exclusive content, news of books and authors we've talked to on the podcast, and behind-the-scenes content on what's coming up next. Join our Binge Reading on Patreon community. You'll find the details you need at patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, forward slash the joys of binge reading. But now, here's Gary. Hello there, Gary, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thanks a lot, Jenny. Uh, what really is important to me is this, the sense of a New Zealand readership. So I'm really glad that you're talking to me today. Well, that's wonderful. I mean, we do have quite a few uh, listeners in the States as well. So, And we've got, mainly it is US, New Zealand and Australia. So quite a nice spread. Okay. Listen, I think we have to start with congratulations because you have collected yet another award, haven't you, just in this last week? Yes, the Australian Crime Writers Association has an annual Ned Kelly Awards, uh, Best First Novel, Best Nonfiction, Best International Fiction and Best Crime Novel. And uh, my third Paul Hirschhausen or Hirsch novel, Consolation, just won the Best Crime Novel of the Year Award. So I was very chuffed about that. I've been shortlisted for years and years, so I was glad to win that. But I think you have already won it before, haven't you? And you've got a Ned Kelly Lifetime Award as well. Yes, I, I've won the award um, twice before for a Wyatt novel and for a Peninsula or Inspector Chalice novel. Fantastic. So it's not surprising that one of your fellow authors, Chris Hammer, describes you as the gold standard for rural noir. And you've just got a fantastic, you really are Australia's premier crime author. So we're really privileged to have you here today. And we are going to be focusing on the crime fiction and probably particularly on the consolation book, especially now it's an award winner. So tell me, with all of the things that have happened, including 
being on the shortlist for the Man Booker a few years ago. Does does this remarkable career in any way stack up to what your expectations might have been starting out years ago as a as a would-be writer? It is an interesting question because I have been writing for 40 years. I will say that when I started off as a writer, I had no idea what to expect, really. My ambitions were very small. I'd get a short story published in Mianjin magazine, for example, have my first novel published. So they were my aims back then. I didn't, I didn't ever think I'd make a living as a writer. I have made a living as a writer, a very patchy living, of course, so my income goes up and down. But I would say that after writing for 40 years, it's only in the last, say, five years that I've had a sense of a readership. It's only in the last five years that my books have been taking off overseas. Only in the last five years that I'm starting to make a halfway decent living as a writer. But it's taken 35 years to reach that point. Yeah, it it is remarkable. And just to sort of diversify a little bit, but it's even harder today for a lot of writers because of the way that the whole system is being truncated and mid-level writers in particular. A lot of the writers that I speak to on this show, even if they're best-selling New York Times writers, don't necessarily have a great living out of it. It's really surprising. Yes, I think a lot of readers don't realise that if a Gary Disher book is selling for $30, he's not getting $30, he's only getting 3 which is 10, you know, 10%. The other 90% is split three ways between the, the publisher, uh, the printer and the distributor, very roughly. Yeah. So you'd need to sell a lot of books at $3 each to make a decent living. So mm. like many writers for most of my career, I also relied on public and educational lending rights for books being borrowed, giving weekend workshops, appearing at writers' festivals, very occasionally writing an article or a review for a newspaper. So they were the bread and butter income because uh, my publishers only pay my royalties every six months. So there are you know, weeks and months go by when I don't have an income at all. Yes, yes. Now, you've been remarkably successful as well at co- in combining the more literary standalone novels with the crime series. Tell us a bit about the way that you've kept that balance and when did crime start to become a really important part of your writing you know, portfolio? Uh, first of all, I'll talk about the, the diversity. I, I think uh, I need to keep fresh as a writer. So if I were to only write crime novels, I would get very stale, I think. So occasionally a literary novel or a children's novel, that sort of thing. So it keeps me fresh. I treat them both seriously or I treat all those uh, different fields very seriously. So that was the main thing is to keep fresh as a writer, but also the diversity helped me professionally in the sense that if I were to spend five years on a, a highly wrought literary novel that only sold 2,000 copies, I wouldn't last very long as a writer. I wasn't writing for money necessarily when I wrote the children's books, but the world of writing for children is a very warm and encouraging one. Uh, the feedback from teachers, librarians, the kids themselves, parents, getting books set on reading lists, set on reading groups and so on, it all helped me as a professional writer, that sort of diversity. But when I started to write crime fiction, I'd already had um, a couple of literary novels published and a couple of short story collections, but I've always loved reading crime fiction. Perhaps we can blame Enid Blyton with her famous five and secret seven stories about a group of kids 
uh, in England tackling bad guys like smugglers or whatever it might be. So from a very early age as a child, I had this love of adventure novels, crime novels, outwitting baddies kinds of novels. And uh, always, I've always loved reading crime fiction, so I thought I needed to see if I could do it myself. And the first crime novel was a Wyatt novel. It took me a long while to learn how to write it, though, because early in my career, um, I wasn't much of a planner. There's no right or wrong about it. I happen to be a planner. You don't need to be. But my literary fiction, the novels and the short stories, were a voyage of discovery. Uh, I'd start with a character in a, in a certain situation and write to see what happened. And I couldn't do that with the crime fiction. So now I spend weeks, sometimes even months, planning because I need to stay a step ahead of the reader and I'm getting better at it. My plots are more complicated now. Not that it doesn't mean that the books are more difficult to read, just there's a lot more going on underneath the surface now of the books. That all comes from the the planning. On the other hand, though, I, I always trust my instincts. If my instincts take me away from the plan, then I'll listen to that little voice in my head that, that little tap on the shoulder saying that this plan isn't working. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, having had the privilege of talking to quite a range of authors over the last three years, it is surprising the number of crime or thriller authors who still do rely on instincts a lot more than you'd think. I mean, I'm I'm thinking of Michael Robotham. He more or less says that he doesn't really know what he's going to be writing until he sits down at his desk. He allows his instinct to almost entirely lead him, even though they are highly plotted. But it's interesting. It sounds like you might be at the other end of the spectrum there, that you know quite a lot of the detailed plotting. Yeah, I have the whole book in my head almost before I start writing. But as I said before, there's no right or wrong. It certainly works for robots. And and my approach works for me. So yeah. if a, a new writer is listening to this program, they shouldn't be anxious about that. If they're a planner, good. If they're not a planner, that's good too. Yes. Now you've mentioned Wyatt, so I'm I'm really interested to to talk a little bit about Wyatt because he was a professional criminal. Your first major crime series was built around a professional criminal, and he meticulously plans his crimes. I just wondered how you got inside his head, particularly as you started there. Well, Wyatt was influenced by some hard-boiled American writers like Richard Stark. Uh, of the who were very popular and influential in the 1960s and 1970s in, in the United States. That kind of moral ambiguity, the hard-boiled character who was often a bank robber or something like that, really, really appealed to me at the time. Still doesn't, in fact. So I wanted to write about a character like that. I think it taps into part of human nature that wants to pull the perfect crime Now, I'm never going to rob a bank or murder someone, but there has to be a side of me, a darker side that's appealing to this darker side that can imagine that happening. So to write Wyatt, who's nothing like me really, I I muddle along like most people, but Wyatt is a very cold, very concentrated, very meticulous character. So I just had to forget who I was and if I were a bank robber, how would I operate? And... uh, At one level, these books are pure fairy stories because uh, uh, no one in their right mind wants to rob a bank if you can be robbing drug dealers because that's where the big money is, is in drug dealing and and so on. But I couldn't hope to make uh, an appealing character out of a guy who dealt drugs. So he's an old-style bank robber. And I just 
thought about, I just thought my way into his skin. I had to forget who I was. But I do break one rule of writing with these books. A, a rule of thumb is that you get to know your characters very well before you start writing. Well, we don't know Wyatt at all, really. We don't know very much about his background. In the early series, I had him as a, a Vietnam War veteran, which would make him in his 70s now. So if, in the later books, I forgot, I've managed to steer clear of that. But that uh, explains some of his um, practical skills. But we don't know whether he had a bullying father or that he had a, a twin sister who died of leukaemia or he's got a little niece who's in hospital and needs an operation for leukaemia. There's none of that in, in the books. We don't know what makes him tick. Only The only thing that matters to Wyatt is robbing a bank or robbing a jeweller Unfortunately, of course, he has to rely on others and they don't, they're not always trustworthy. But that's as far as I go into his mind. A lot of the appeal of the books for me, as a reader and writer, I think, is the minor characters. I have a great deal of fun with them. But I think if yeah. I were to go into Wyatt's mind, if I explored his childhood in a few chapters or that sort of thing, suddenly Wyatt is not Wyatt anymore. He's a vulnerable character. And... Uh, he would no longer be Wyatt, that's the case. I get letters from readers saying, I don't approve of Wyatt, but I want him to win. And that's fine by me. That's exactly what I want. Yeah, there's a fantastic critic's um, comment about that, which um, I must actually read it out because it's just so funny, I think. They said, Disher writes with all the compassion of a well-placed bullet in the back of the head. So that sort of sums up Wyatt, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, the, the, there's a quite different um, stylistic approach with the Wyatt novels if you compare them with my Hirsch novels, for example. Hirsch is a very well-rounded, very warm sort of character who muddles along. Uh, we've got a lot of sympathy for him. We know what his hopes and fears and desires are. Uh, and the, the, the style, the, the sentences on the page, the tone of them, the personality of the voice reflects that. Wyatt, the language is stripped down short sentences, there's no flourishes to speak of because that matches the tone of the stories and it matches the tone of the character Wyatt. I couldn't hope to write a Wyatt novel with long, rolling, delicious sentences. So I'm stepping into the skin of the book and I'm stepping into the skin of the character when I write, write anything. Yes. Now, Hirsch is very sympathetic because He's a man, he, he's not a campaigner. He didn't particularly want to be a whistleblower, but he didn't also want to be drawn into uh, deliberate corruption. And so he gets caught up in a foul system and he finds himself having to go against his workmates. He gets labelled as a narc because of that and he gets exiled to a no-man's land. So he's a good guy who's on the right side and he gets badly treated by the system. You've said that Hirsch is an outsider in search of a true home and that a lot of your characters that would apply to. And I wondered if you could just elaborate a bit and how much do you personally identify with that sense of searching for a true home? I, I, I identify with it quite a bit. When I look at all my books, the uh, main characters are outsiders at one level. Partly that can be appealing to a reader because the outsider character is very perceptive, has a, a good eye for what's going on around them. We want them to win. We want them to feel comfortable, but there's always that edginess which can make a book or a character appealing. If I wrote Hirsch as a guy who went home to his wife and kids at the end of the day, who's 
uh, parents lived in the next street who belonged to a tennis club who went drinking with his mates who was thoroughly an in insider. I would find him boring and I don't think he would, I don't think he could operate. He has to be on the edges, on the margins. And that's true of most of my characters, even the kids in the kids' novels and the teenage novels and the literary novels. They've always been outsiders. They, they can cast an eye on what's really happening, whereas an insider can't, I don't think. But that, and I relate to that because I feel like that too. I grew up on a farm. I didn't see other kids after school or on weekends very often. Uh, I was older than my brother and sister. I spent a lot of time just by myself daydreaming, and that daydreaming is kind of storytelling. The Hirsch novels are set in the Weeta Wool Country, halfway between Adelaide and the Flinders Ranges in South Australia, and that's where I grew up. I left there, though, when I was about um, 19 to go to university in Adelaide and haven't been back since, except for, of course, to see family or family Christmas or whatever, and I've still got family there. But after that, I lived in Adelaide and I travelled overseas and I came to live in Melbourne. Now I live down on the Mornington Peninsula, about an hour and a half southeast of Melbourne. And I've never quite felt at home since I left home, if you know what I mean. So I've always felt, and I think it's perhaps influenced the books I write, this sense of an outsider watching watching the centre from the margins. Mm. It's also interesting because your books, all of them, have such a very strong sense of location and it's a fairly unforgiving location, even if you're not right out on the outback. It's a tough environment and it seems to be reflecting what the characters themselves are going through. Tough environment and a tough life. Do you think that's true too and is the setting as they say in a bit of a cliche, is the setting also another character? Uh, yes. I, I, to me, setting is just as important as character and plot. Everyone talks about character and plot when they, or, or storyline, you know, whatever, when they're talking about a novel or a film, but, and they forget about the setting. And I used to teach creative writing and my, a lot, most of my students didn't pay attention to the setting either. Let's say they have a husband and wife arguing in the sitting room and they think, well, okay, the curtains are drawn and there's a TV on in the corner, that's enough. But it's not enough. I think that you can tease at, explore elements of the setting that are going to add to the tension between the two characters. Setting, to me, is a very, very vital element of fiction. Um, I learned that in an interesting way when I won a creative writing fellowship to Stanford University in California. I thought I'd jump in the deep end and gave them a short story to workshop uh, at the start of the uh, academic year. And they pulled the story apart. They hated it. It's a simple story about a young woman who goes into a pub, sees, his, sees her ex-boyfriend across the other side of the pub and is trying to decide whether or not to go over and speak to him. And it's only 10 pages long. There are no car chases. There's nothing like that. It's a very internal story. And at the end of the story, she realises, no, she's moved on. She's, she doesn't have to go and talk to him. He's part of her past now. And that's all the short story needs to do. And But class pulled it apart they, and someone whose opinion I trusted, she'd had a few stories published in the New Yorker, in fact, she said, your writing suffers from sensory deprivation. And I was quite, <laughs> quite demolished by that, but I did. But I asked her what did she mean and she said that good writing makes pictures in the head. She said, I don't know if your main character is fat or thin or tall or blonde, sense of sight. She said, I can't hear the jukebox in the corner of the pub sense of hearing. 
She said, I can't smell the cigarette smoke, sense of smell. She said, I, I can't feel the dampness, beer dampness of the carpet under my feet, sense of touch. I can't taste the pretzels on the bar, sense of taste. So she said that good writing makes pictures in the head by appealing to our senses. And it's the best, cleanest uh, bit of writing advice I've ever received. So now when I'm describing a person or a place, I try to appeal to the reader's senses because it's going to bring them into the action. It's going to put them face-to-face with the main character or it's going to put them in a car rattling over a corrugated dirt road, for example, just by appealing to little things like sense of hearing, a sense of smell. I don't beat the reader over the head with a lot of sensory information, just what's appropriate at that time. Yeah, that's right. And that is it's so right, having been, you know, fairly much immersed in your work for the last few months, I can very much attest to that. So how did it happen? Your, your, the book that was shortlisted for the man book of The Sunken Road is quite different from all of these because one thing is that one of the key characters, one of the main viewpoints is female and it's Anna Tolly, leggy, willful, auburn-haired, always answering back. So how challenging was it to write from a woman's point of view uh, when all of this really intimate detail is so important? Okay, I, I should go back and give, make a small small correction. The book was, uh, I think, long-listed or nominated for the prize. It didn't reach the shortlist. But, oh, okay, I mean, it was so, a yep. great enough honour for me at the time to have reached that far. When I first started writing The Sunken Road, I, I, I made attempts over a 15-year period to write the book, in fact, until I found my voice, until I found my way into the story. I thought I was going to write about a farmer I've been reading the short stories of the Canadian writer Alice Munro, who writes about small town, small farm life in southern Ontario, I think, mainly. I just loved her stories and I wanted to do the same about the small town, small farm life that I'd grown up in, in South Australia. And I thought my main character would be a farmer, but he was just a cardboard cutout. He didn't come alive in my head. And uh, I realised that when I went home for Easter or Christmas, I enjoyed going out to the paddock with my father and we'd fix a leaky trough for the sheep, for example, or we'd fix a broken fence and we'd yarn about practical matters of the farm. I enjoyed that. But what I really enjoyed was sitting at the kitchen table with my mother and my sister and sometimes my aunt listening to the, to the, to the district gossip, the stories of marriages that have broken up, of who's going out with who, that kind of thing. That's what really got to me and I realised then I wanted to write about a woman who's grown up in a farming area. As for getting into her head, I didn't find it difficult. I didn't switch gears necessarily. Most of my friends are women. Um, I'm not a very blokey bloke. I don't like sport or beer or anything like that. I don't go to the pub. I'm awkward around men. I, I like talking to, listening to women. So that perhaps helped me with this book. And as it happens... Um, with the Peninsula novels, for example, the police procedurals, there are about seven or eight of them now, the Inspector Chalice novels, in other words. As the series has progressed, two of the minor characters, women characters, female characters, became much more interesting to me than Inspector Chalice as the series progressed. And so now they have quite major roles in the book. I'm talking about Ellen Destry, who was just his sergeant, his offsider in the early couple of books. But by the last book, she's head of the sex crimes unit, for example. And she has, well, she's got 50% of the story, I suppose. Uh, another minor character that appealed to me was the young uniformed constable Pam Murphy. I re- as the series progressed, she became much more interesting to me. And she retrains as a detective and she has a 
a much stronger role in the, in the last Chalice novel as well. So I like writing about female characters. My most recent literary novel is, is called Her, and it grew out of a, a little 1920s, uh, no, even earlier, turn of the century newspaper clipping of a country newspaper about a, a three-year-old child who'd been sold by her parents to a travelling uh, scrap man and his wife. That's all the newspaper said. But I was fascinated by what might have happened to that little girl. And so I've told her story in this novel, Her. So Sounds fascinating because in the last Inspector Chalice, there's a child that gets sold as well. It must have been in your mind at the time. Probably, yes. <laughs> Are there going to be any more Wyatt or Chalice novels? I'd like there to be. I've just finished a standalone novel called The Way It Is Now, which will come out in November. It's a it's set on the morning peninsula where I live. It's about a disgraced cop who's who's uh, been suspended for pushing his inspector over a desk. But it all had to do with a with a rape case. And he's got a lot of time on his hands now, so he starts looking into the disappearance of his mother 20 years earlier. His father had been blamed for the crime. The body was never found. His father was the main suspect. They think she was probably murdered. And he's determined to clear his father's name. So he, now that he's got time on his hands, he starts looking into that uh, case. But, of course, he's not a cop anymore, or he's, rather he's on suspension, so he can't use police databases or anything like that. So he's, in a sense... He's um, an accidental hero. He, he has to draw in his own wits now rather than the might of the police force to solve this crime. And next year I'm writing the fourth in, uh, Hirsch novel set in the mid-north of South Australia. I'm contracted to. But I'd like then to return to those earlier series, the Wyatt. I'd like to write another Wyatt and another Inspector Chalice novel. I can because I get a lot of feedback from readers. Well, not many. I'm not. I'm, I'm talking about a couple of emails a week, wanting to know where's Wyatt, where's Inspector Charles. Are you writing another one? And so uh, I think there's a demand there for them. And I, you know, I don't want to keep writing Inspector Hirsch novels all my life. I, I'd like to keep fresh by shifting from character to character. Yes, it seems a theme developing here because another one of your recent standalones, Under the Cold Bright Lights, was a crime novel about a retired cop who many consider as washed up, who, who works on cold cases. And it, it seems to me there's, there's a theme there as well about good men in an unforgiving world. They, they do their best to do the right thing and they still manage to fall foul of the system. Is that something that, you know, you feel is true about the world. It is in the sense that sometimes I can barely manage to read the morning age, the morning newspaper here in Victoria, because I have a sense of the bastards getting away with it. And by the bastards, I mean highly placed businessmen, politicians, sportsmen, whatever it might be, that they, they, they can pull the most terrible crimes. You know, they can ruin pensioners by stealing all their savings or whatever it might be, and they get away with it. Whereas a, a drug addict who shot this from Coles might very well find himself in jail. Uh, why aren't these guys in jail? It's that, kind, that sense of outrage is in me all the time. And 
So I think it's one reason why I write about these guys who they muddle along, but they've got a sense of decency. And at one level, they do outwit the bad guys. Yeah, it's interesting because another perceptive critic said about the Wyatt books, but it could apply. I mean, it certainly applies to the most recent chalice, Signal Loss. The brilliance of these stories is that as the plot unfolds, it becomes increasingly obvious that the real villains are the lawyers, the financiers, and the bankers with the million-dollar yachts, expensive cars, etc. So that very much underlines what you're saying, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. That's um, that Wyatt in that latest novel. I think is uh, there's, there's a guy who set up a Ponzi scheme, and I'd had a lot of newspaper clippings about these Ponzi schemes, where there was a story of a man and his friend in Geelong, a major regional city, city of Victoria, who stole something like eighty million dollars from um, retirees and so on. And there was a story of a retired school teacher who had eight hundred thousand dollars in his superannuation and lost the lot and committed suicide. And I thought, that's the fallout of this sort of crime, ruined lives. So, yeah, the urge was there to, to stick the boot into someone like that. Yeah, in, in um, signal loss, you know, the people in the town who are supposedly the respectable business people who were all into secretly running ICE networks and things like that, isn't there too? Yeah, yeah. So, I, I again, I've got, I, as I said, I'm a planner, but I... Also draw on all the uh, news, all the new newspaper clippings that I gathered over the years, and I had quite a lot on the drug ice and its effect in regional areas. We know it's terrible effect in cities, but it has an even worse effect in rural areas. I think where often there are no jobs for the kids, and they get and ice being very cheap to make, they get addicted to it, and it can affect their behaviour in the sense that they become very violent, very unpredictable, and it can make ordinary crimes that much more vicious. So it was a real real scourge to of a, of a drug, I think, in rural areas, and I wanted to write about that. Yeah. Look, we are starting to come to the end of our time together, and this is the bin- joys of binge reading. So I'd just like to ask you a little bit about your reading habits. You probably aren't a big binge reader as such, but tell us what you're reading at the moment, and is there anything you'd recommend to listeners? I am a binge reader in the sense that I go back and read Reread favourite authors. So at the moment, I'm re- rereading uh, Ian Rankin, and uh, I, can't, I just forget the name of the type, name of the novel that I'm reading at the moment. But it's one that came out four or five years ago. So I'll read a whole series of Ian Rankins. Then, early, I mean, earlier in the year, I read a whole series of Michael, old Michael Connollys. So I do that from time to time. But I, I read new new authors all the time. Uh, as well. Tana French, uh, I think she's an Irish writer. I hadn't read her before and, until I read one of her books a while back. So if you like it, I'm a binge reader in that sense. But I read, so most of my reading, I must admit, is crime, but there are certain other writers I like. Colm Toybin, the Irish writer, I read one of his books recently, for example. And I'm always going back to Alice Munro's short stories. That's great. And look, um, looking back over the years now, you, as you mentioned, you've been writing for 40 years. You've won, you've come to a lot of peaks in your career. Have you personally got any mountains that you're still wanting to climb? <laughs> uh, well, I'd love it if, if one of my books was turned into a film or a TV series. Um, I'm not talking about the money involved, but I, it would give me a real, a real thrill, I think, 
if to see one of my books translated as a film or a TV series. And has there ever been any sniffing around in that regard? Ah, uh, yeah. Ever since the Wyatt novels back in the 1990s, people have been sniffing around, but never yeah. never gets past the option. An option is where they they pay you, you know, one or two thousand dollars for the rights to the book for a certain period, like a year or eighteen months, and then they try to the production company then tries to get funding for it and a script boost and all the rest of it. So I've had a few books optioned over the years, but it's never gone past that. Yeah, I think there's a high likelihood in the next, say, decade because they're getting so hungry for for content now with so many streaming services. So you might just be lucky. Yeah, and I would insist on on a role in the book, even if it's the the old geezer in the background. Oh, that's fantastic, Gary. So you've mentioned a little bit about what you're doing over the next uh, 12 months or so. Just um, recap that for us. What have you got on your your desk, so to speak, for the next 12 months? What can your readers look forward to having from you? Um, next year, there'll be a fourth Hirsch novel. The end of this year, or early November rather, is the standalone crime novel called The Way It Is Now. And I've just finished a Hirsch short story for an anthology. I haven't written any crime short stories for a very long time now. But an Australian, small Australian publisher called Lindy Cameron, who, whose press is called Clandestine Press, and a New Zealand critic called Craig Sisterson, you might know of him. Oh, yes, very yeah. well known here. They, they got the idea to put an anthology of Australian New Zealand crime short stories together. So I've just finished a Hirsch short story for that anthology, but I don't know who else is involved, and I don't know when the book's coming out. But in the meantime, for the rest of this year, I will just start scratching my head over a new over the new Hirsch novel. And has that got a title yet? Uh, no, it hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, that's fantastic. Now, where do readers find you? Can they get you online, or do, do how do you normally interact with your readers? Yeah, there's a, a web page, www.garydisher.com, and there's a, a, a link there that will enable people to email me. You're happy to correspond with them. Yeah, yes, yes, I am. Although it, it depends, though. I get lots of lovely, well, not lots, about one or two emails a week, uh, and they're usually really lovely ones, and I treasure that. But every now and again, I'll get someone who will say, very disappointed. And so if it's that, if it takes that kind of um, tone, I might, might not respond. <laughs> Do you very often agree with the criticism? Uh, yeah, if it's fair criticism, I'm, I'm happy to take it on the chin, yeah. Thanks so much, Gary. It's been great talking. Thanks so much. Thank you, Jenny. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. 
Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.